Hello and welcome back to the Drift Proof Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Cipriano. And I just want to take a second today to thank everyone who's tuned into the podcast over the last couple of weeks, almost a month and a half now. Um, Last Monday, I had 30 downloads in one day on my episodes, and that was just incredible to me. I cannot believe that this is moving so fast. I'm so excited to be giving this information out to the world. I'm so hoping that everyone is getting something valuable every day from these episodes. So today I have a special guest on. They are all special and I'm always going to say that. His name is Don Rea. So if anyone tuned into episode six with Danny Villapando, he was a mental health technician that wants to be a psychiatrist. We work at the hospital together and Don also is aspiring to be a psychiatrist and he works as a mental health technician at the hospital. So me, Daniel and Don are co-workers and I know it may seem a little bit redundant to have an episode with somebody who's aspiring to do the same things. I'd like to mix it up, but Don has a completely different viewpoint on life than Daniel. They're both awesome and intelligent, but Don is actually writing a book right now on complexity of the world. So throughout the episode, we're going to just touch on uh, points from Don's book. And then we are going to talk about ideology today. Uh, We're going to touch on Marxism and I'm going to give it a shot to kind of define postmodernism and ideology. This is a really important thing to do is mix philosophy with psychology and also a little bit of religion. Uh, We do talk about Christianity today. Don is a Christian. I think he's Catholic. And it's important that you have a sound understanding of all three because you really can't understand the mind in completion without those three elements. We're going to touch on coping today. Coping is also a huge area of psychology. So Don gives a really good recommendation of what he says is the best coping skill. We're going to do fear and anxiety and talk about the difference and similarities between the two. We are going to talk a little bit about heteronormativity in the gay community. Again, it's not supposed to be just a gay podcast, but it's turning out that way, which is totally fine. And we're going to talk about implicit bias and implicit association testing. If anyone doesn't know, um, another hot topic in psychology that's pretty controversial is the implicit association testing at Harvard. So we're going to touch on that and give our ideas on them. And then we are going to finish up by just Don giving some advice about life like we normally do and healthy ways to pretty much have a healthy mind. So at the end of the episode, it ends around an hour and 10 minutes, but me and Don were talking about his book after the episode ended, and I decided to turn the mics back on, and we gave our best shot at talking about morality and objectivity. So that last 20 minutes is kind of like a little bonus for you guys, and it was just such a deep, amazing, and I'd say thrilling conversation about morality. Um, I was literally sweating when I was talking to him about it, and it was just so amazing. So this is one of my favorite episodes I've recorded so far. I only have nine out, so it's not a ton to compare them off of, but this one got really deep. It got really psychological, and it was just heated in a good way. So with no further ado, as always, I really hope you enjoy this episode and get a lot out of it. This is Don Rea. All right, welcome back everyone to the Drift Proof Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Cipriano, and today I have another special guest from the hospital I work at. His name is Don. You want to say hello? Hello, everybody. My name's Don. I work at the psych hospital with Andrew. Been there for about two months now, and I love it. So what got you into psychology? Let's start there, because not really everyone just wants to work at a psych hospital. Gotcha. Yeah, so it goes way back to my own mental health issues starting freshman year of high school. I struggle with anxiety in particular. I haven't struggled with depression yet. Hopefully I don't. Congratulations. But, <laughs> yep. I don't know. Anxiety is a bitch though. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, so it started then and I took about two years to really get to the point where I could say that I was stable again or being able to do things I normally did before. And um, the whole process, being able to get through all that inspired me to want to serve back to the community to make meaningful change. 
and gave me a purpose in life. So that's when I started really setting my goals and having a career in mental health. Cool. So when was that? After your your four year or was it during your four year that you had all that figured out? Uh, my four years of high school or? No, no, no. Your college. Undergrad. Gotcha. Sorry. <laughs> so I knew going into college that I wanted to do something mental health. So okay. It has been a while. I just graduated. So it's been six, seven years since I wanted to do something in mental health. Okay. And, um, yeah. I went into undergrad with, uh, well, I wanted to do psychology or something related, but I ended up picking neuroscience because I'm more of a science-minded person. Okay. Um, I like real applicable stuff and not saying psychology isn't real applicable stuff, but I find that science, the hard science applies to everybody. Like you can study the brain, you can look at the circuits, you can determine what's causing mental illnesses and do stuff about that, even though we're so far from like having the answers to everything. Okay. I'm but, also very logical, so I get that. I just don't mm -hmm. want to do medicine per se. And I know if you go into psychiatry, it's medicine and I don't want to do, I don't want to touch meds. I understand they're important. Yeah. Um, so can we actually jump into your viewpoint on medication in general after, especially after being in the psych unit for two months, what do you think about psych meds? All right. So I think it would be helpful to start with my own experience with medications. Cool. So I am still on Zoloft and it's been about six or seven years. And wow. the reason for that is because initially it was just to help with my anxiety and it does help a lot. That's for sure. But I went off about two, three years ago for about seven months and everything was fine initially. Life during the day was okay. But then when I went to bed at night, I noticed it was much harder to sleep and I was losing sleep, not being able to fall asleep. I was getting this anxious thought in my head that you can't sleep, you can't sleep. And then that pattern repeated over and over and I couldn't break the cycle. So I decided for my academics so they wouldn't suffer to get back on it. And so I plan on... Just like, what were you on Zoloft for? It's an antidepressant, no? Yeah. So it also works to reduce anxiety okay. by um, putting more serotonin in your brain, basically. Okay. Serotonin is a calming uh, neuro, what, neurotransmitter. Uh -huh. yeah. do, you know, so, do you know Jordan Peterson? I do. Yeah. Have you read his book, uh, 12 Rules for Life, the first one? I have not, but I've heard of that a lot. Yeah. If you <laughs> read the first chapter, it's all about the serotonin uh, circuit and how it works. And I don't know, that sounds very familiar that you were educated in that. <laughs> gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. I plan to read that one day. It's, it's, it's definitely a good book. It's a hard read, though. Yeah, I've, I've heard great things about them, though. Going back to my view on medication. So that was my personal experience. And I plan to get off of it. I don't know if I said this already in about four or five months, once all the medical school interviews, if I get them are over, not going to count my chickens before they hatch. In general, I think a lot of other people maybe see the medicine as this solution, like take the pill and my problems are solved or that is what they see, I think. Yeah. And don't want to put in the mental energy or effort or think it's even possible if you put in the mental energy or effort to mm -hmm. actually make real progress. And maybe people start doing something like that, but then they realize how hard it is and they just want the easy solution with meds. And I think that at least the psych hospital that we work at unfortunately promotes that. And that, so that for anyone who doesn't know, I don't know if it's for every psych hospital in the country, but ours is strictly a medication. So they do very basic therapy. I wouldn't consider it therapy. Um, coping skills, training, I guess, but it's, you're leaving on a medication. There's no way if, ands, or buts about it. Like that's how you get out. So exactly. Yeah. I mean, the goal of the hospital is to stabilize people mm -hmm. and I get that, but I don't know. I don't know if these people end up seeking long-term treatment afterwards. And I don't think the hospital is a good job of setting that up. 
if it, it really is. It, a- it doesn't, but that's not the point. I mean, it, the bottom line of it, and I try not to be too pessimistic, but it is a business. So, mm-hmm. you know, they want to check their liability, make sure they're not going to get sued. And the psychiatrists aren't there to do therapy. They're there to medicate, stabilize, get out, and they kind of take their best guess. Mm-hmm you know, in a not too pessimistic view. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I said, why with the Zoloft, when you went off for the six months, you didn't have any kind of depression symptoms or anything. No. Did your anxiety get worse or was it just the sleeping you were, that was different? I'd say it got a little bit worse. I'm a big Lions fan. And when I started watching <laughs> the Lions games afterwards, I would get so anxious and unlike anything I experienced in the last five or six years. And then when I was doing some schoolwork, I was a bit anxious too, more than usual, but it wasn't anything unmanageable. It was just the sleep thing, not being able to sleep. That's what kicked it for me. I needed to get back on it in order to, I, I don't know. It's so I didn't want to face it at the time, I guess. No, that's fair. Like, when you plan to get off of Zoloft, are you going to do like meditation and more mindful based stuff to try to curb the anxiety? Cause I know certainly. Sleep. Okay. Yeah. Cause like that's, I get anxious and then I get racing thoughts like nuts at nighttime. That's just how my mind is. So I've been doing yeah. meditation lately, but it's actually been helping like a lot. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So that's my, that's why I don't want to do the psychiatry. So I was just curious. I know you just talked about one medication, but like, what do you think about people that come in the hospital and they're actually schizophrenic or they're actually have like some severe psychosis and they don't know which way's up. What, what about meds then? Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to discount meds. Meds are a great resource. I just mm. don't think for most mental illnesses, they're a long-term solution. Something like schizophrenia, though, I think can be dealt with more with meds than other mental illnesses like depression or anxiety. Because um, a lot of that is your brain chemistry is completely off. Like people with schizophrenia have different working brains. Like their brains are like noticeably different on a CAT scan or mm-hmm. uh, any kind of scan. You can see the differences. And medication has been proven to help with that a lot. And I think basically... Everyone who's diagnosed with schizophrenia, most people are on some kind of medication to help deal with that. But even with that, medication is not the only solution. And you're not going to get anywhere if you don't put in work yourself or seek out the help of a therapist or maybe look into resources to deal with that problem yourself and put effort into it in the long term. Mm -hmm. So So, um, why did you pick psychiatry then instead of becoming like a clinical psychologist, a counselor, a social worker? Why psychiatry? Okay. So honestly, at the beginning, it was more so, oh, psychiatry sounds cool. It's like I get to be this doctor, have all this influence, all that. Mm -hmm. But as I read more into it and looking at the different career options, I just like psychiatry better because it was more science focused or neuroscience focused, which was my undergrad degree. And I know today that medications are a huge part of what separates psychiatry from psychology and everything else. Yeah, there's a whole anti-psychiatry movement with the meds and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I'm not a part of. I think psychiatry is important. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But honestly, I think psychiatry, what it should be, how I see it ideally, it should be psychology plus the meds combined in a way that is effective, takes into account complexity, and is not something separate from the field of psychology. Rather, psychology is like inside of it. Like if you think of a, uh, I don't know, a circle, like that is psychiatry. Like psychology will be totally within that circle, basically. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a critically important part of it. And I think that people, a lot of psychiatrists today, especially the ones at our hospital, are forgetting that important part of it and just turning to the meds part. So, yeah. And I, I'm curious if they ever had a practice where they did therapy or if they just kind of got it because you make a lot of money in, in patient psychiatry, like, and Mm -hmm. the system kind of encourages you to do the exact psychiatry they're doing with the meds. So Mm -hmm. I'm not saying they're wrong, but, um, I think I've heard that there's been better psychiatrists at the hospital and they've they've been burned out because they've been forced to take more patients than they wanted. 
because yeah. they, they wanted one on one time and they weren't allowed that. So it's not yeah. just a psychiatrist issue. It's the system. And, you know, we're kind of a medication country, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but like you said, that's the easy way out. And a lot of people don't know that without medication, you can still like take care of anxiety, depression, trauma, stuff like that. I actually have a theory. So what do you think about this? I think that sometimes psychosis is trauma expressing itself in kind of a disconnect from reality. Do you think that that's accurate? Say that again in a what? So trauma expressing itself in a disconnect from reality. So I used to have guys in the guys unit on the male adult unit that would walk around in psychosis and their voices would be speaking about their unhealthy boundaries with their mother. I'm like, that's interesting mm -hmm. to me. So I was curious. A lot of them said they never had therapy one on one. And I was curious if that trauma was or the psychosis was their brain trying to make the most sense out of something they couldn't understand or mm -hmm. if it was just a brain, you know, chemistry balance. So gotcha. Um, I think it's a combination of both. For sure. I haven't thought about that too much, but I mean, yeah, a lot of these people, I don't think have been given the resources to really sift through their thoughts. No, they really know what they mean. So I think when you see these people saying these things or I mean, what you'd expect of a psychotic person, a lot of it has to do with brain structure differences and balances, but a lot of it is just they haven't had the right resources. So I don't know if that's answering your question. I was a little bit confused. but Okay, yeah. so. I just say I have a theory that trauma and psychosis are heavily um, entangled and that mm -hmm. the meds might just be masking something that you should actually deal with with therapy mm -hmm. and it's expressing itself like with a normal. Could you explain what a normal psychotic patient looks like to anyone who doesn't know? Because, well, you say the term psychotic and they think nuts trying yeah. to beat you up and rip their eyeballs out like that's what you'd expect at a psych ward. But it's not like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a variety of patients. Mm -hmm. I mean, no patient is the same. And like that can't be stressed enough. But I say commonalities among psychotic patients, um, just a disconnect from reality. Mm -hmm. like, they'll say things like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be this famous person or I am this I get big a lot person of, with influence. A lot of kings and gods come into my unit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you have people that think that you're there to attack them or mm -hmm. like you have all this influence over them and you were the one who like put them there. For lack of a better word. Yeah. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, that I think that's more like paranoid schizophrenia, which is like super real. There's a lot of pa patients who come in who are genuinely terrified that the whole world's after them and a yeah. horrible. I can't even imagine how that would feel. Mm -hmm. um, they used to. So they actually used to have I heard 10 years ago, they came in with this machine that you could like see what psychosis feels like. And they'd be like talking to you and seeing different things. Was, I don't know. I think it'd be cool to try that. Um, <laughs> not to be. Yeah, like, honestly, not to be like insulting. <laughs> All right. Sorry, we had to cut out really fast. Just to make sure the mic quality was decent. I'm happy with it. Uh, so we're going to keep going. Um, so we were talking about psychosis and why you're in psychiatry. So do you also want to tell me like what you're, you already applied to med school, right? Yeah. Okay. So what was the hardest part about that? And what would you advise someone who wants to do that advice? for oh, dang. <laughs> so I think I didn't really know how to approach the whole thing when okay. I started. That's what Daniel I said was, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I listened to that podcast and dang. I mean, every med student, every pre-med student says this. Mm -hmm. Like, if you don't have a family member who's gone in the field already that can help you out with it, you need to do your research or seek out resources because there is a lot to the process. And not to make it sound too intimidating because it's definitely manageable. But it's not manageable if you wait. Like, I, this is yeah. why I'm not going into clinical psychology as a doctorate because apparently any research experience, they say without research experience, they're not going to touch you as an applicant because an applicant, that's what mm -hmm. we're going to be doing. So I'm 26. I'm not going to go and do research experience at a university. I'm not going to for a year or two just to possibly get in. I'd rather just go and get my degree in social work or something and then do counseling. Yeah. Um, so it's good if you have the information beforehand and then it isn't overwhelming, but it can be if you find out last minute. 
Exactly. No, definitely. And I mean, I decided that I wanted to go into the medical field my junior year of college. So I had to rush and get all these things in. I had to do research just to check the box. Mm, and same with Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't feel too genuine about it, but it turned out to be a better experience than I thought. And I learned a lot from it. And then medical schools, of course, want clinical experience. So you need some kind of clinical experience in a hospital or clinic setting beforehand. So mm. that's a reason why I'm doing this. I obviously pick psychology because that's what I want to do long term. But you can really do any hospital, clinical, volunteering, work experience thing. Uh, and be sure to get it done before you apply and have a decent amount of experience. Like I think they want at least 200 hours for most places. Mm -hmm. Then you need to take the MCAT, which is the worst exam that anyone's <laughs> ever taken. It is so much stuff to learn and everything. But again, it's manageable. I think if you set aside a couple months to prepare for it, you'll do well. Make sure you take practice tests and everything. And then the last step would be, um, oh, well, actually, there's more. Getting good grades and then writing a good personal statement essay, why you want to be a doctor. They seem to be able to tell if you're genuine or not, I've seen. And if you don't really know why you want to go into medicine or you're just doing it for like superficial reasons, I feel like they'll be able to sniff that out. So do sit down, do some reflection, thinking, why do you want to go into this? Is this the right field for you? And come up with a good story that can convince the medical school admissions people. Um, I don't even remember your original question. I have a bad time. Just, no, it, it's okay. Yeah. Just what advice for people going into med school? I think that's perfect. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. I heard that you have to pander a little bit during the mission statement. Is that correct? Yeah. And there's kind of a balance you have to play with that. Like, you can't do that too much. Though I think they'll be able to again, realize that. But at the same time, I, I don't feel like that's right. And I feel like if you, it, it's so much better just to be honest about it in the first place. So there is a little bit like you can maybe exaggerate some things or put emphasis on things that maybe didn't mean that much to you, but that they want to hear. But I guess my baseline is don't make anything up or anything like be honest and yeah, check the boxes, but do it in a way that's genuine is true to who you are. And I think it'll produce good results. Cool. So I do want to talk. You came up with this whole list, five pages of stuff to talk about. And I love this. <laughs> I'm not that organized. So I appreciate this. Um, this is not organized. This <laughs> is to me. <laughs> so you are writing a book. Can we talk about that really quickly? Sure thing. Cool. So what's it about? So I actually didn't know the theme initially. When I started it three years ago, it started with a conversation with one of my friends in college okay. who has, I'd say, pretty different views for me in general. Um, he's not a psychology-minded guy. He's a very devout Catholic and believes in very hard-nosed doctrine. And like, this is how you should do things. Like, if the Catholic Church says this is moral, it's moral. If the Catholic Church tells you to do this, you do this. And no teachings can ever be altered or changed. So blind faith, like kind that. of? Yeah, basically. Okay. So got into a summer-long conversation, basically. Like, every day we would be texting, calling, talking about that stuff. And initially it was a big argument. But I think over time, I learned to really enjoy it and had a great time with it. And I saved a manuscript of all the conversations. And I'm like, huh, you know what? There's some good stuff in here. I kind of want to start maybe turning this into something like that could be published. And I mean, nowadays, like as it's evolved, I've turned it into a book that, I mean, it has some of that conversation stuff in there. That's how it all started. But I've created a theme for the book, which I see... I just in all the things that I think about and I read and I take notes on, there's this one theme that stands out to me. And it's that 
things in life seem to be a lot more complex than people give them credit for. I, I think you can see this in so many areas. Mental health, for one. Mental health conditions are, I mean, so complex, so more, so mm-hmm. much more than like physical conditions. Like if you have, like if you break a leg, you can fix that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's not an easy fix, but it's certainly a lot easier. And we have the tools to do so nowadays versus a lot of mental health conditions, which we just don't know enough about the complexity of the brain in order to deal with them. So that's um, the main approach in psychiatry is the biopsychosocial approach, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so they look at the biology, which is the only part of medicine they look at. If you're doing physical medicine, then they also look at the environment is a social approach. And then the psychology of what's going on inside your head that all affects the individual. So it's like a holistic. And that's why it's so confusing and subjective. And it's not so logically hard science that people like. Mm-hmm. Um, one, OK, so I don't know if you do you know anything about politics or like ideology or Marxism. Yeah, totally. You do? Awesome. Yep. So that's my thing with ideology, I guess, or Marxism in particular. It seems like a hot topic these days. And do you know postmodernism? Uh, you could probably explain it and I'd be familiar <laughs> with like it. It's like a newer version of Marxism. So Marxism was just that everything could be explained by the difference in political class. So that's mm-hmm. what you blame everything on life. And it was kind of taking the complexity out of it. And mm-hmm. that was it. So everything could come back to that. Postmodernism is everything can be blamed on power. So that's why... Mm-hmm. racial inequalities are existing that's why there's a pay gap that's why like anything that you can think of politically is because somebody wants to take power over somebody else so they take yeah. all of the complexity out of the issue and that's what's left is just one reasoning for everything so do you have like an example of something else that is oversimplified other than mental health that like even that you're writing about in your book yeah uh so you were touching on racial issues and power and everything mm-hmm. and LGBT i'll expand on that and the lgbtq uh-huh. community and i can talk about both of those so awesome racial Issues first or racial topics first. I mean, everyone knows like what's been going on recently in the media. Like there's been a lot of focus on racial topics. And I think that, again, like Andrew was saying, there's a lot of focus on power. And the reason that everything is this way, like that racial injustices exist today is because there's differences in power and those differences need to be like removed. And that kind of hints to Marxism in some way. And that, again, that's like really all I feel the media focuses on. And um, like there's also that focus of white people realizing white supremacy and realizing subconscious biases, which is good to a degree. But I think the media certainly overshoots it. And then um, we're really fast with the implicit association test from Harvard. It's got like a correlation of 0.4 when really the scientific correlation should be like 0.8 of consistency along results. So they're using that to say that we're implicitly biased. And I don't think that's fair. Not in a scientific sense. Yeah. I mean, I actually think there's a little bit of you do. evidence. Okay. I don't think it's to the degree which the media or modern could you, could you explain organizations. Because I've taken those tests before. And it's literally, if anyone hasn't taken it, it's like it shows a picture of a black person. Then after it shows good or bad, and you have to click whichever one as quick as you can. It's just like a reaction. I mean, I have heard studies about people looking at pictures of white people and black people. And then which one's holding a gun? Like people are more likely to click the black person. Mm, so like that stuff is, I, I guess I've seen credible studies that support that okay for sure and i mean it, it does make sense from that perspective just because i mean again like well our past history plus it, people in the african-american community are on average more likely to commit crimes and this has nothing to do with their skin color 
inherently or anything like that. No, it doesn't. But, but you'd be just, labeled as offensive yeah. for saying that, even though that's not what you're saying. Yeah, so, exactly. So if it's offensive to anyone, oh, well, we're not trying to be. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, just that in particular. That's something that's never mentioned by the media. And I think that is behind a lot of that bias that does exist. But then again, going back to this, I, I think it is exaggerated. The implicit bias, these trainings that a lot of people are being forced to do are not really based in much data or reality. They're based in like a very flimsy or like a thin amount of data to support it. And um, I just think those studies or those things are kind of made to represent the whole when they're not. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Do you have a question or you want me to Not really. No, and I'm not totally disproving the implicit association test, but they're used as a scientific tool that's more accurate than it actually is. So I just want to say that like there's, there's probably some truth. Yeah. If you see I don't know, a gay guy or a straight guy. I don't I don't want to say black and white the whole time, but that's mm-hmm. the easy example, right? If there's a guy yeah. holding a gun, you're gonna assume they're black, blah, blah, blah. So I get there's some truth to it. And there is absolutely racism in the country. Like no one's disproving that there's racism or inequality and the so- social economic status of African Americans is totally affected because they were slaves like 150 years ago. So yeah, obviously that has something to do with it. But exactly, yeah. You know, to oversimplify everything into race, like we're doing in this country and separate people is it's childish you know, we're, we're better than we've ever been. We're working towards it. We're acknowledging that there is racism in the country, but to, you know, I've been called a racist in psych ward and I absolutely hate that. It's the easiest way to try to take, that's taking power over somebody else. You know, I'm not, it's just frustrating. And you know, I used to work on the unit and there'd be guys who just didn't like me because of my skin color and that's Mm -hmm. racist too. And it's like, it's just a divide that shouldn't exist. When I lived in Spain, the black white divide didn't exist whatsoever. There was other divides, but it was nice going and hanging out with people from all different races. And that never got brought up, you know, and there's always yeah. an underlying tension in this country. We never go hang out with somebody in a different skin color that that's a thing. And it's just, it's bad. And I hate it. It's stupid. Honestly. So, okay. Then you had something else on your list I want to bring up. What is inbred thinking? Inbred thinking. <laughs> yeah. This is interesting to me. Yeah. So this is a term I came up with myself. So, oh, is it really? Yeah. Okay, cool. That makes sense why I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know if it's the best word because inbred can be insulting to some people. And I recognize that and I don't mean it to come across. My as... grandparents are first cousins, so... Oh, really? Uh-huh. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Off the boat from Italy. So if I'm not insulted, gotcha, no one gotcha. else is allowed to be. <laughs> All right. <laughs> awesome. I guess I can go forward with that then. <laughs> All right. So inbred thinking. So I, I base this in biology, a biological concept, actually. So just like inbreeding with humans. So if two people inbreed, um, I mean, you won't notice like any complications in the offspring or Do children you? or anything like that. What? Do you? Oh, God. I've been told, I've been told <laughs> no, I have I think a forehead of a caveman. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> just kidding. Never thought about that. But no, I wouldn't say it's true. But, yeah, no. I, and maybe it's not apparent in, like, the first generation or anything. But if you do perpetual inbreeding, mm-hmm. maybe if you we'll go with the royal. made it with your first cousin or something like that <laughs> and then had kids and then they made it with their first cousin, you'd notice. Yeah, the royal party. Stuff. Look yeah, at all the, the princes they have. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, over time, just, like, the inbreeding, if you do it again and again and again, you get to this, like, really unhealthy set of genes and, like, people are just, again, like, in so many rich families, royal families, there's been, like, all kinds of problems psychologically, physically, just because you don't get a variety of genes within the pool of genes, basically. So then I draw that analogy to viewpoints as well. A lot of people right. today, they're in information bubbles and they don't realize it. Like they hear they hear what they want to hear. They hear, seek out news and information that affirms what they believe or want to believe. And they might not even realize they're doing this all the time. They might think that the news they're reading is accurate, um, that it's 
it covers everything. It's a comprehensive analysis of everything that there is today. But the reason that this divide exists today is because people only want to hear what they want to hear, basically. Yeah. Um, and after a while, after being around people and news information that just tells you what you want to hear and when information comes from the other sides or perspectives, it's like negative information. It's like twisted in a way that suits what you already believe, basically. So you're not hearing it from their mouth. You're not hearing it honestly. You're hearing it in a way that's already skewed. So over time, your mind, your brain literally changes to like believe that this is the reality, like nothing else exists. You don't even realize that like the people on the other side's perspectives, they have their viewpoints are a lot more credible than you think. Probably just as credible as yours, if not more. But again, like just being in this bubble, you just you have like these glasses on basically. And you again, you see the world in like a totally different light and you don't even realize you have the glasses on. So inbred thinking, hearing the same stuff over and over again, just like inbreeding. If you inbreed over and over again, eventually it gets to the point where it's like you're really like removed from everyone else. You're really like unhealthy genetically. Like you can't probably breed with anyone anymore because you're not compatible with them. Just like if your viewpoints or like after hearing the same stuff over and over, like your viewpoints aren't really compatible with other people's because you're so far removed um, that it's hard to really converse with anyone anymore. So yeah, so, that's what I mean by that. Okay. No, that makes sense. So actually I have a book over on my shelf. It's called Republican Like Me and uh, super far lefty went and kind of experienced life from the right side and got out of his bubble. And he talks about the bubble. That's what he learned was that both sides are a lot more right than they think, and they have points on both sides that are right. And um, I just did an episode on last weekend with my friend Megan. She's a journalist, and she says that's why the rise of uh, opinion-based media is so big right now and opinion-based journalism, quote-unquote, because people just want to hear what they want to hear, and it makes money. It's like it's just easy, and you who doesn't want to sit in a room and confirm everything they already know or have somebody else say it for them, you know? Yeah, exactly. So be smarter than that. There's so many resources out there. You should always investigate both sides of the story. Um, I was super against medication when I started the hospital. And instead of remaining skeptical, I went in and tried to build the strongest case for medication I possibly could. And I learned that I was wrong, but also some of my original beliefs held. So I'm a more holistic person now, and I think I'm more intelligent for doing that. Do you know what a steel man argument is? Steel man? Mm -hmm. No. So a straw man so. argument is when you take the worst point of anyone's argument yeah. and you just trash your argument from that. The steel man's the opposite. So it's exactly what I did with meds. You go in with your opinion or somebody else's opinion, you build the strongest possible case you can for their opinion and then see what sheds off of your own belief system. So, you know, that's what you should do if you want to be intelligent and actually learn. You shouldn't just confirm your beliefs you already have or else you are living in a bubble. And we have too much information to be doing that anymore, I think. Exactly. Um, it used to be like two news stations and it was fine. But even back then, the news stations weren't so polarized and opinion based. So mm -hmm. um, don't be a sheep and don't be an inbred thinker. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good term. Um, so I have a question. How old are you? 22. So you've been writing a book for three years already? Yeah, about. That's cool. When do you think it'll be out? Just out of curiosity. I put the deadline around like 2024, maybe. Okay. So I don't know. Maybe I'll take a little longer than that. I'm trying not to rush it. You shouldn't rush yeah. it. So this book, actually, Jordan Peterson, Maps of Meaning, um, I'm like a third of the way through it. But he said that he spent, he went over every sentence of the book like 50 times. And he says that genuinely, who knows Jordan Peterson? He talks very confidently, so I believe him. But I'm writing a book too, and I'm like 60 pages into it. It's kind of a similar format of the Rules to Life books by Jordan Peterson, like how you should act if you want to not be depressed and nihilistic in life and have some kind of positive emotion if you're lucky. And I, every time I start writing, it comes out and then I go and revise it. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> I get like, do you know what relativistic thinking is? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing with it. Like, try, 
I'm like, well, maybe this point doesn't make sense to this person. Blah, blah, blah. But this, <laughs> you, I guess the way yeah. to beat that is just realize there are some points that are better, but you have to also steal man the other argument and then see what is left at the end of the day. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Does that make sense? Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in every one of my podcasts, this is not supposed to be a gay podcast, but I'm gay and it just, I have a lot of friends that are gay and it's just a big hot topic. So there's a lot of gay shit going on right now in the world. So, um, yes. What is your opinion? You said hetero, heteronorm- heteronormativity. What is that? First of all. <laughs> That you're, it's you don't normal, know how It's is? normal to be straight, right? <laughs> I'm the worst gay person in the world. I'm slightly right leaning, and people hate that in the gay community. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not a good gay person for those kinds of things or political correctness. No, actually, you're the best one. Thank of, you. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> oh man. So heteronormativity. So that is just the general cultural belief that heterosexuality is the preferred or only normal sexual orientation. So that anything else is like weird or unpreferred or maybe like people will be affirming it and whatnot but like subconsciously people are like oh oh you're gay you're you're not heterosexual you're not like yeah that cultural belief that still exists today and is within all of our systems that's what i define as heteronormativity so i actually campaigned against this at notre dame last year i worked for the lgbtq office at university of notre dame and i started a campaign against this just notion. And I, my target points were how it causes mental health discrepancies. I mean, it creates the closet for one, mm-hmm. um, which so many people are still trapped in today. I, I believe when people say the average age of coming out is like 19, 20, I don't believe that because I still think there's a ton of people that are still in the closet, but just haven't admitted it to themselves or others yet. Um, and that kind of just brings that age range, that uh, average down. Um, but yeah. And Looking at stats, LGB youth, not transgender, but LGB youth are about, I think, two to three times more likely to have mental disorders, mental complications, and I think five more times as likely to attempt suicide. And I mean, I really can't point to anything besides heteronormativity. And also, I mean, well, at least for youth, when people are older, there's like, and if they become part of like a gay community or group of people that are unhealthy with their thinking, like all thinking about like pleasure and like, oh yeah, this is me. And I'm going to like, this is my whole identity, that kind of thing that can be unhealthy as well. But at least with youth, I think the only thing I can really point to is just like the fear of coming out and not accepting oneself. And I try to campaign against that. Um, And I, I think certain things like representation are necessary in media news and like accurate representation not stereotypical representation like oh you have the stereotypical gay guy and no i agree i had a whole episode um my third one i talked about it was probably a little offensive but i talked about the gay community and how there's no positive role models it's all instant gratification it's like the worst nobody wants to to be identified with the gay community because it's all let's get naked and take drugs and drink copiously and it's not good role models psychologically you know if nothing else yeah exactly and honestly, I feel like that's what a lot of youth, they feel like they have two options. One, to accept that kind of lifestyle or two, to remain hidden. And there's not really like a third option, mm-hmm. which being gay, really all it is, is just you're the exact same as anyone else. It's just there's that one difference. It's just like, yeah, you just happen to be attracted to people of the same sex. It's not like necessarily, oh, you have this whole different lifestyle that you have to take up. And I feel like a lot of people who are still closeted, they just don't fit into that. And that's one of the reasons they're still closeted is because they don't want to be part of that. And so um, what's what's the cure to that? I would just think putting out more content that's by gay leaders who are kind of not super out. I don't know how to say that. Mm-hmm. Not a bad influences, but 
living normal lives and it doesn't define them. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, for one, maybe, maybe this is not a great example, but Pete Buttigieg, um, I think if he rises to like even more prominence one day, he already kind of is, but I think he's a good role model of that. Like people Actually, like who him. Is that? I don't know who that is. You know who Pete Buttigieg is? Yo, I'm the worst gay guy in the world. Oh, <laughs> so he ran for president. He actually won the, uh, I think the Iowa caucus last year. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So he's a gay guy, mayor of South Bend, um, oh, which is where Notre Dame is. Got farther than anyone expected him to do in the elections he's last gay? cycle. Just kidding. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. And I think he's now like the secretary of transportation or something like that, like okay. Biden's cabinet. So, yeah. But anyway, I think he would be a, a good role model example. Like he's a married man. He now has kids, I think, adopted and very professional, like nothing stereotypical, I would say, about him. Like he's just another guy. Another ordinary person. The only thing that's different is that he happens to be married to a guy, basically. Okay. So, yeah. And then I kind of want to touch, you have a whole list of things that are advice how to deal with mental health yeah. issues. So can we talk about anxiety really fast? Anxiety. Oh, man. So I struggle with anxiety a whole lot. I was even, I was nervous to even start this podcast. I'm still nervous right now. Somehow I'm getting through it, though. Um, a lot of leg shaking and looking at the screen. Yeah, I, I'm bad at looking at people I'm talking. I'm fine looking at people when they're talking to me, but when I'm talking, I have to like just look somewhere else. No, I, I, I get that. Though. Yeah. Anxiety. So yeah, this was the core of my own mental illness, which I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's really an illness anymore. Like it doesn't dominate my life, but it's still in the in my head. I still have to cope with it every single they day. They say so. But, I don't know if they even consider anxiety an illness. It's more of a disorder. It only becomes a disorder when it's affecting your life in a negative way. And yeah. That's subjective, even who says what a negative way is. But, you know, there's not really any anxiety illnesses, just disorders. I kind of use illness and disorder interchangeably. Maybe I shouldn't. But, I tra I'm yeah. trying to talk more carefully in psych, but obviously I'm offensive and saying the wrong thing. So <laughs> whatever. That's my knowledge on anxiety disorders. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, it was it was really difficult to deal with at first. And to deal with anxiety, were you going to say something? Yeah. Did you have it forever or when did it really pop up? So I always had social anxiety from day one. Okay. And I was I was very antisocial up until middle of high school. Like I would be the guy who sits alone at the lunch table, doesn't talk to anyone. And I would feel awkward about that. I knew something was wrong with me in that sense. Like I needed, I don't know, I needed to get out of my comfort zone more. Are you an only and child? I'm not. No. Okay. What What are your siblings? How old? Two younger sisters. They're 19, 17, I think. Okay. Yeah. But I'm the oldest one, only guy. So yeah, I always had some kind of social anxiety. I was always socially awkward until I, I was forced to deal with the anxiety with my mental health issues. And it started actually one night I was going to bed. Like I can all, I can pinpoint this whole thing to one day. It was the last day of my freshman year. I had an exam the next day. Okay. Freshman year of high school. And hmm, actually, I don't know if I really want to say this because maybe some people might start like thinking of this and then they'll start like going like, oh, I can't get this out of my head or something. But anyways, these thoughts that like took over my mind and um, I also have an OCD personality. So I wanted to get rid of these thoughts as bad as I could. So what is OCD um, personality in relation to this? Could you kind of explain this for anyone who doesn't really know? Yeah. So basic OCD, like the stereotypical OCD is like you have an obsession and a compulsion. So the obsession is, let's say you need to go to like the bathroom. You feel like you really need to go to the bathroom. And you don't for some reason. So your compulsion is like in order to satisfy that need, you need to go like immediately no matter what. And I actually struggled with this a bit. I found myself like going to the bathroom like every 30 minutes or something like that. And I didn't need to go. But it's just like my mind's like you, you can't live if you don't do this or something. Okay. Like, you have to keep. Yeah. So it's these like obsessive compulsive cycles that just like 
you know it's irrational, but like the anxiety is so strong that it just forces you to do this because you just want that relief. Yeah. Um, but anyways, the OCD that really affected me the most was just it was all in my head. Like I had these thoughts and they were taking felt like they were taking over my mind. They started affecting my some of my bodily processes because I like paid too much attention to them, like sub, normally subconscious processes. And the anxiety just like it's like you have to get these thoughts out of your head. You have to get these thoughts out of your head. I tried to like not think of them like I tried everything I could do to forget the thoughts and just not think that they were there. That was futile and like futile. And it took me a while to realize that it's paradoxical in a sense, dealing with a lot of mental health issues, anxiety, the natural response by the body is to do something completely different from what's actually good for you. Uh huh. Yeah. And even when you start doing what is good for you, what's proven to be good for you, it can take a while to realize that it's actually working because it's usually a long term thing. And that's where that's why people jump to the pills, because it's so much easier. It's called, you know, it's therapy. Carl Jung has shadow work. It's called work because you have to put in the the shit. You know, it's difficult. It isn't easy. So I just want to throw that out there. Mental health issues are not supposed to be easy. And the pill is not going to solve everything for you if you're not actually working on yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I wanted to share a little strategy, though, just for anyone who's struggling with something similar. Yeah, please. Heart anxiety. So it's one I've been, I guess, developing with myself for the last couple of years. And I found has been really effective. So when I have a thought in my head that's causing me anxiety... Um, the first instinct is to just ruminate about it, to think about it over and over again. And like, how am I going to like prevent this thing from happening or like quell my anxiety? And usually it's your mind thinking about just the scenarios like, oh, what could go wrong? How do I adjust for that? But that thinking is completely unhealthy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you have to, in a sense, not like force the thought out of your mind, but kind of put it in the background. Um, just accept that it's there. And move like stop the ruminating process. You can do that. Just stop that cycle of thinking and then move that thought to the background of your head and direct your consciousness towards something else. It's easier said than done. It feels kind of weird. But if you practice this, I mean, meditation is great at helping you do this. Uh -huh. Over time, you're able to be much less anxious, deal with your thoughts a lot more effectively and redirect your attention when you need to. Yeah. So, so that's what meditation is actually about. For anyone who doesn't know, it's not you're never forcing anything. You're not supposed to just be there empty of mind. Um, you're allowing thoughts to come in and then you're just not engaging with them. And that does feel unnatural. And it's hard to explain. There's not really like a, a formula to it. You just have to do it a lot. So like if you need help with this, put, literally there's a meditation app called Insight Timer. It's free. You can go do guided meditations and someone else is talking. So it makes it easier for those thoughts to come in and then subside with someone's voice coming in if you're not good at it. And then eventually... Like you said, you have way more control over your own mind mm -hmm. and you stop the rumination process, which is also linked directly with depression, rumination, which is literally in Latin. It just means chewing over, chewing over like the same information again and again. It's like cows ruminate in the field. That's how they eat. Technically, it's called rumination. <laughs> so they chew all day on the same. Oh, well, wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's where that, that word comes from. Um, Didn't know that. Yeah. So and another way to do get rid of rumination is meaningful activity. The only time you ruminate is when you have nothing else to do but think. <laughs> So yeah. If you're doing something you actually care about, you won't sit there in your depressed thoughts. Who would have known? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That was huge for me. I want to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, please do. So writing this book, just getting into mental health in general, it gave me more of a purpose than I've ever had. And I would feel excited to do the work that I did instead of feeling why, that it was a chore. Why do you think that is? Because I'm really trying to pinpoint meaning in this podcast and what gives people meaning where it comes from and like... Yeah. Why do you feel meaningful in psychology as opposed to anything else? Gotcha. Well, one, I think psychology, it's 
so underdeveloped and I, I feel like there's so much potential for change for advancement in the there world. definitely is yeah so i think just being able to contribute to that even in a little way just can go a long way honestly i i feel like i've contributed my life has meaning um i'm doing something meaningful for other people um and i actually want to touch on that because i heard this in one of your other podcasts doing something for someone else for other people not just for yourself is an awesome way to live life. And this is what I've always liked about Christianity because I'm a Christian myself. It's it's so much more fulfilling to do things with the other person in mind than it is to just like pursue a career for money or for yourself or for other things. You, I mean, you might not have everything the, like the typical Hollywood star or role model has or anything like that, but you'll be fulfilled and it does promote mental health. It's, it's very good for the mental health to dedicate a career to serving others. And I think that's helped me as well. I've been challenged to think about my own ego, my own thought process, like how am, am I doing this out of self-desire, selfishness, or is there an element of this that's in it for other people? And I think when I reflect on that and I go towards the avenue of serving others over myself, that usually ends up producing the best mental health for me, even though in the moment it may seem like, oh, no, I really want this thing or I really want to uh, like, can I really go into this? Uh, I, I mean, I, don't know. I guess psychiatry isn't a good example because psychiatrists make a lot of money. But no, but like, it, it's fine, though. The only thing with psychiatry is a lot of them make a lot of money by doing shitty, immoral things like anyone else who makes a lot of money. You know, mm -hmm. um, I sold cars for two years. I worked at a good dealership, but I heard of stories of people doing really shitty things for money. And you have that potential to do that in any field. But psychology, you can also, I think it's probably the most powerful position in mental health you can get into. It is. Mm -hmm. But you also have the most potential to drastically change people's lives. So exactly, it doesn't have, just because you're making a lot of money doesn't make you a bad person. But if you're making money doing shitty stuff, that makes you a bad person. Yep. <laughs> so like, I'm not against psychiatry. I'm not even against psychiatrists at our psych unit, but I don't think that they're doing things how I would do them or the right way. Yeah, exactly. Um, and a lot of people who do like the psychiatrist, the hospital, I don't think they're bad people or selfish no. people. They just haven't really thought about that a lot. Or, or it's just, you know, like, cognitive dissonance and or, or willful blindness. Yeah. I'm helping people, but I'm not. And I don't want to think about it any more than what I'm doing because then I'll actually have to be forced to think about maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's an ego. Doctors have huge egos. That's just the thing. <laughs> like the doctors are psych yep. words. They're fucking assholes sometimes how they talk to people. Yeah. But again, they're not bad people, but there's no bedside manner like. Their ego is definitely large. <laughs> oh, man. Jeez. <laughs> so I had a dream that I was a patient in our mental hospital that we work at. And, oh, man. like I have not had that dream. You have not way. had that dream? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Anyway, so, and I actually, I feel like if I was a patient there, I, I would feel this way. And I mean that the doctors, the staff there, I feel like there's this idea that they're somehow superior or they know better than you or they're like, smarter than you, more intelligent than you, just because of the position they're in that you happen to be a patient at the time. That is exactly, I'm sure that's how they feel. I know that's how they feel. I've talked to them before and the doctors don't help with that stigma either mm -hmm. with how they treat people. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like it's largely a subconscious thing, but something that people should be aware of. Um, like if I was, I could be exactly as I am right now, but if I had the label of patient and I went into that hospital, I mean, it would be hard to not see me as a patient. I mean, I've met people at the hospital who are so much smarter than me or become like <laughs> amazing doctors one day at probably one of the best schools in the country. But just because they're patients, it's it was like almost like, what? That's true. I can't believe that. Like I was finding myself in like that mindset. Like I thought I was the one in the more stable position. Like I got it all together, everything like that. But honestly, all it is like one event, one little thing, like say your significant other dies or break up. I, the breakup's a big one, at yeah. least in 
my unit, which is the more depressed suicidal one. Or like death of a family member, some other big event. That's all it takes for like one of the biggest doctors in the world, like very high esteemed person, person that everyone thought they had it all figured out. That's all it takes for them to be in that hospital. So there's really not much separating the the staff member from the patient. There's nothing. We're all human. Um, We all work there pretty much because we have our own mental health issues. So to think there's some kind of a divide culturally or intelligence wise is it's stupid. I, I just I know that stigma exists, but the patients put that on themselves. If I were to, not just them, but they're also benefiting. You know, not benefiting, but some of them do have the victim mindset, which I don't agree with. And they don't. Mm-hmm. Those are the patients that come in. They want the pill to fix everything, and they listen to the doctor like gods. But there are patients who come in who take control over their life, and they don't listen to the stigmas or the labels. So that's also a problem I have in mental health. I think they over-diagnose labels mm-hmm. and medication, but the labels don't help. There's so many patients that are living under the ADHD label, which is like silly, or the I'm a depressed person label. And it's like, no, don't do that to yourself. So it's it's both ways. It's not just us putting out that stigma. It's them stigma, stigmatizing themselves as well. Mm-hmm. They actually are the biggest stigmatizers in the hospital, unfortunately, but that's what I've seen. Yeah, I, I agree with that in a sense. Um, going back to the labels thing. Yes. So I, I found that doing my book, it's like, again, the same theme. Everything's a lot more complex than it seems, mm-hmm. or most things are a lot more complex than it seems. And mental illnesses, putting them in a category, in a box, like this is ADHD, this is schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a little more like consistent though, but ADHD, depression, anxiety, it affects everyone in so many different ways. It's very unique from person to person, but it's treated as if it's like one common thing. Oh, it, it's um, frustrating to me. Because it's yeah. not even so really quick for anyone who doesn't know the DSM five is what we do in psychology. It's like our diagnostic tool book for how we diagnose. And it's just guidelines. There's no hard science really saying this is exactly what it is. I talked to my professor one day and she said, don't ever assume that it's not guidelines because that's what it is. So and a lot of mm-hmm. people have a lot more people than should have uh, capability and licensing to diagnose, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot when you throw a label on somebody, you shouldn't do that unless you're absolutely positively sure it's going to help their life more yeah. than hurt it. Um, maybe a little tangent here. Do you mind? Please. <laughs> labels. I don't like labels at all in like any kind of area. I don't either, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so feel the politics, for instance, like the label of the Democrat, the Republican, the like even like asking people like, are you a Democrat or Republican? I feel like it's so simplified and well this goes with your reductionism book pretty much yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) and it's the same in mental health it's the same for lgbtq identities just like these boxes that put people that you put people in and i mean again like these they're supposed to be like i mean the boxes are good as long as they're not closed like they're they're a good descriptor for like an average of like a lot of people or something like that or commonalities but today, I feel like people are labeled like, oh, you're a member of this or you're a member of that. And over time, people just begin to associate the stereotypical traits with you just because like you have that label, basically. Yeah. I don't see you as a complex individual. So just thought I'd throw that out. It's the same way with mental health. Again, if we didn't have those labels, I mean, not saying that they're bad, but like they shouldn't be used as much. Like they should just be used to describe like just common traits of a person's specific mental illness. Have you looked into so. personality disorders at all? Uh, a little bit. So I've done a lot of research. I've had two classes on abnormal psych and a personality psychology. So like I've done a lot of research on it and I don't, I can't really get behind personality disorders and labeling people like that. And a lot of times if people know that they have that label, someone assigns it to them, they'll take it on and then they'll start. They do. Yeah, like and, you're saying, and that's, see themselves. That's where the victim mindset comes from. And I hate to say that not obviously not all the patients in the psych ward are victims, but you do see patients who come in who have fully adopted that label into their personality and then they use it to limit what they are capable of and they use it to limit 
themselves from actually making their own lives better. And it's frustrating for me to see that, especially with older people who have been on antidepressants and mood stabilizers for 35 years. They're not as much as they could have been if they would have not labeled themselves. So uh, I guess along with those lines, do you know what um, existentialism is? Uh, you told me about that the other day and it, it made sense to me, but can you say it again? Yeah. So existentialism, it, it was originally a, a philosophy and then they adopted it into psychology as kind of a school of training. Um, so existentialism, there's four rules to it. So one, life is tragic. Two, life is painful and absurd. Three, life is full of anxiety and depression. And the fourth step is that steps can be taken to address all of those things. So it's kind of like saying that you're responsible for your own life, your own mental health, your own fate. So that's kind of the school of psychotherapy that I want to study is just radical responsibility for your own life. And I think that goes with the labeling too and the victim mindset and stereotyping yourself. Um, I was curious if you had heard of that or if you're like looking into therapy yet, because I know you're going to learn therapy in psychiatry school or like, do you, I don't know, do you have any opinions on that? Yeah. So I agree about a lot of that for sure. Okay. I don't know. I can't help but think that comes across as too harsh. And maybe I've been coming across as too harsh in this podcast. Just I don't like, think you, you have, have these problems. You need to deal with it. <laughs> no, but know. okay. But this is my but, philosophy on mental health is you have two options. If mm -hmm. somebody has issues in their life, you can tell them, yeah, you are in this minority group or you're in this socioeconomic status or you're in this, this tragic situation in life. Mm -hmm. And you can tell them that and expects other people are going to help them. Or you can tell them this is the shitty situation, the unfairness of life. And now what can you do that's in reason that you can do to make your life better? Yeah. So as a theory, I think that's great. I don't know. I just want to be cautious with emphasizing like, yep, this is the solution for everybody. No, I agree. Like, that I mean, because there's so many things. That, I'm yeah, not yeah. trying to. I, I know you're not saying. I know you're not saying. <laughs> right. I just like just for the listeners, I just don't want them to feel discouraged or anything. Okay. Like, me neither. People are here to help you for it's, sure. It's a like existential is, is totally an optimistic psychology. It's telling you that the, life is unfair and shit's not right. But. There are things you can do to try to level out the skills in the best capacity that you can. Not unreasonable. Mm -hmm. You know, every single person in the psych ward that's been that's depressed, I ask them questions about their life and there's at least one thing they could do, probably 10, that mm -hmm. if they stopped doing or they started doing the other thing that they knew they should be doing, it would benefit their lives. Exactly. So that's the philosophy I try to teach. I'm not saying that, yeah, take up responsibility for your life and your mom's going to not die and you yeah. won't be an orphan <laughs> and you're not going to be, you know, an African-American who has been discriminated, discriminated against your whole life who, you know, mm -hmm. has real psychological consequences. So have you ever seen, oh, what's it called? A Class Divided. It's a documentary. Nope. So back in the 70s, this uh, educate this elementary school teacher, she had her class and she divided them by blue and brown eyes and she discriminated and had all of the class members discriminate oh. against the brown eyed ones. And she ended up doing this class for 30 years. They made a documentary about it um, and it showed there are definitely psychological consequences to being discriminated against. So I don't want to say that that doesn't exist and existentialism doesn't cover that or it's harsh because it isn't fair. The world is not fair and there are consequences to treating people one way and others a certain way. So Mm -hmm. Um, just want to throw that out. Maybe I am too harsh coming off, but it, I don't mean to be like, I'm inclusive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I am an optimist in mental health and I'm an optimist with the world and I know it's not fair and there's things that aren't fair. And I don't know, you made me worried. I'm sounding too harsh <laughs> to you now. <laughs> you made me worry that I think you're sounding too harsh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I totally agree with all that though. There's so much you can do to be like benefit yourself, to improve on your condition, anything. And like the resources are right at your fingertips. I personally find that YouTube videos, uh, reading books, talking to other people, there's so much information that I learn like on a daily basis that helps me with my anxiety, gives me more purpose in life, gives me motivation to do other things. And I mean, if I didn't just take the time to sit down and put the mental energy into reading stuff or to applying coping skills to my life, 
I mean, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And like, I mean, it's, it's little steps over a long period of time. Can I jump in with that? Yeah. So um, you wrote that down, little steps every day. So if anyone doesn't know, a good physical, very logical way to think about that. Um, there's a rock star. I wrote his name down. Uh, Steve Ludwin. I guess he's an American rock star. He was in Little Hell and Carrie. If anyone's ever heard of it, good for you. But he injected poison into his body every day, a little bit of snake venom, and now he is immune to snake venom. So it's just that, I wow. know it's silly, but like just that <laughs> little bit every day, um, yeah. you know, if crawl forward an, an inch every single day and in 10 years, you won't even recognize where you used to be. And that's yeah. what mental health is all about. So exactly. You don't have to take on everything at once. Sorry. I'm <laughs> go ahead. No, no, no. I just had something to jump in. So this is a very fundamental term in my book. Uh, so I say paradox when I, I TM, say, TM, what does yeah. that mean? again? Trademark. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I have a concept in my book called a paradox, and I don't think it's the typical definition of a paradox, though it is in some way related to it. And I think mental health, the field in general, is very paradoxical in the sense that you think the solutions are one way, but they're actually the other. And despite knowing that the solutions to these mental health problems, like what's going to get you better, is this one thing. Like you just don't feel throughout your whole process doing it that it's actually going to work. And like it takes constant application and like literally every step of the way, there'll be like many times where you think like this is worthless. Why am I still doing this? Even though like if you look back, like look back like over a long period of time, like two weeks, three weeks, you'll probably see the progress, even though you don't notice it in the moment. So that's actually I'm going to jump in. What happens with the depression spiral? So all the things that you should be doing, eating right, sleeping properly, hanging out with friends, you know, going to work, all the things that you know you should do to live a healthy lifestyle, you don't feel like doing so. That's how it spirals into mm-hmm. people living in those horrible depression, what are they called? Depression um, webs or nests. Webs. <laughs> yeah, depression nests where like they're literally on their bed and they can't even move and it's just disgusting. That happens over time of kind of the reverse. You know, yeah. Not doing what you know you should be doing. And I tell people that in the psych ward and, you know, I'm like, you should literally just leave your room and walk around. And they look at me mm-hmm. like I'm an asshole. And I get that feeling, but yeah. that, you know, it's not going to help initially. And you're probably going to hate doing what you're doing it. But then over time, you are going to feel better. It, it really does work. Exactly. And I want to throw in something else here. So yeah. there's a concept in my book called the stock market trend. So I, I was going to ask you about yeah, that. If you're familiar with that. So stock market in general goes up over time, mm-hmm. like over a long period of time, like in the short term, there's little ups and downs, but that's over a long period of time, you can count on it most likely going up. That's why so, in general, retirement accounts are going to go up if you're not too aggressive. That's how the trend works. And it's always worked that way. Yeah. Actually, that's a really good point. I need to think about that. I learned so about it when I was starting a or whatever, our Roth account or something. She showed me the stock market trend. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> Gave nice. me confidence in it. That was awesome. I, I like the point about not being too aggressive though. So if you're consistent and you're not like jumping away from your coping strategy, like every given moment you can, or when you're like feel discouraged in the moment, you'll get there for sure. Like it will be a good investment in the long term. Um, and I, I want to add one more thing real quick. So the little ups and downs along the way are to be expected. A lot of people, when they first start a coping strategy, they get this initial euphoria, like, oh, this is working. Oh, my gosh, my problems are cured. Or like they can't imagine themselves going back into a down. Their brains have literally like crossed like a barrier, that paradoxical barrier. Like they can't imagine what it was like to feel depressed almost when they're in like a euphoric state of mind. And same thing for when they're in a depressed state of mind. It's hard to imagine what it feels like to feel really good. Yeah, isn't that weird how that works? You yeah. totally forget emotions aren't like retroactive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. But like just trusting those ups and downs, like those little downs are normal. And it's not a sign that your coping strategy is not working. Those downs are a time where like 
it's like most critical to apply that coping strategy and to get through it because like it's just a little bit of the down and then you'll be right up on the up and if you give into a down then you're gonna like restart yourself basically and that's i think people do this with their entire so this is why i've named the podcast drift proof because people do something meaningful to them and then they stop they drift through their life so they'll start something meaningful and then they'll quit when that down hits um Mm -hmm. like even this podcast i've had a thousand downs of things technical difficulties and shit or like the stickers i ordered i literally dropped them on the window of my car that they had an accident um and lost them just little things that wow. I, it's just stupid <laughs> shit like Dang. that shouldn't have happened i lost them at kroger but um there are there are downs and that's usually where i would have quit in my life when i was i don't know 20 years old but you have to learn to take those little steps every day and just keep fighting through and have faith that that stock market trend is going to kick and oh you know hell in, yeah in a year you'll be somewhere else you know exactly and you're happy that you didn't give up but the same thing works with depression you know coping i've had so many ups and downs with uh, meditating, but I'm finally at the point where I look back a year ago. I'm like, I'm doing this better. It's actually helping my life. So it's just important to be consistent. Can I ask you what coping strategies you're referring to or what coping strategies work to you? Cause that's such a broad term. Okay. So two in particular, so, so define coping one, really fast coping. Hmm. So I'd say it's just mental strategies to deal with anxious thoughts or things that are affecting you badly. Just yeah, like that's good. Making them, yeah trying to do something good with them i like asking so, because i've had a thousand definitions for everything in psych so <laughs> yeah i know there's an official definition i know it but i can't remember it but yeah i mean just along that idea anyways so my personal coping strategies i talked about the anxious thoughts one earlier like putting the thoughts in the background mm-hmm. not ruminating yeah that's very helpful something else i like to do is positive reappraisal i don't know if you're familiar with that no so this has actually been shown to be a very effective coping strategy, if not the most effective overall wow. with dealing with like really any kind of mental issue. And it's basically taking negative situations and putting a positive spin on them. So like taking the positive out of them. Is it almost um, like humor? I wouldn't say it's humor. No, it's okay. like <laughs> like any I've, I'm a believer that in any situation, negative or positive, there are always positive things about it. Yeah, I agree. It's like taking the positive out of it and emphasizing that or focusing on that. Or like when you're in a down, like in the stock market trend, like I was talking about, mm-hmm. finding the positives and focusing on those basically. Not, yeah. yeah. So Carl Jung believed in spiritual alchemy and there there are meanings to be taken out of every single experience, regardless of if you can see that in the moment. If you can look back and understand what that situation meant to you then you can take something positive out of it. That's pretty exactly. much like there's good and bad in the world. You wouldn't be happy if it was only good. So exactly. You yeah. know, that's how we grow. We develop, we turn into diamonds or whatever, or alchemize <laughs> ourselves into gold by dealing with all those negative experiences. I know it's kind of woo woo, but yeah, <laughs> I like, so Carl Jung did a lot of this stuff with alchemy and all this like spiritual, but it was cool. So, but it's the same idea. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to touch on, I think a lot of people think that everything happens for a reason. Uh-huh. I like to change that into like... I almost said that earlier. I'm happy I didn't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I, like, I mean, I think maybe technically like, yeah, if this happened because like these reactions occurred before and like it's scientifically led up to okay, that. you're getting technical so you can explain it. it. Yeah. <laughs> but no, like when people say that, they think like, oh, like, yeah, there's a purpose for this. But I feel like the purpose is created by you. And I like to rephrase that into like good things can come out of everything. Like good reasons can come out of any experience. And it can be changed in a way that like can be used for good. Can I rephrase it then? So, yeah. So not everything happens for a reason, but maybe you can draw a meaning out of everything that's happened. Yeah. That's okay. Nice. So that's yep. what Victor Frankl. Do you know Victor Frankl? Nope. He wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He has kind of, he was an existentialist. So I really like him, but he came out of the Holocaust and had all these beliefs on life and radical responsibility. But um, he says that you don't ask life what the meaning of life is. Life asks you, what is the meaning of your life? And it's by that same idea that you find the meaning in everything that's happened to you. You don't have to say it happened for a reason or give it 
positive credit. Like my mom said, that was awesome. I'm so happy to have transformed, you know, but Mm -hmm. you can find meaning in it. Like even when you go through depression and then you work at a psych ward, you know, something horrible has happened to you. Now you understand what it means to you and you can help other people not go through that experience. Yeah. So that's why I like existentialism. That's pretty much what it is. Um, Honestly, yeah, you're right. Meaning, yeah, the the framework or the equation, since this is rational, I'm sure you'd like this. It's um, suffering minus meaning equals despair or depression. So once you can find a meaning to what's happened, even if it isn't the meaning you're looking for, or again, it didn't happen for a positive reason, you found some meaning out of it. And now you can use that meaning to build the, I guess, build the foundation off of your life and why you don't want to kill yourself every day and be nihilistic. And exactly. So yeah, those are the options. You either find meaning in everything that happens to you or you don't and you get bitter and resentful, Mm -hmm. which happens to people all the time. And I see it in the psych ward and they're so young, like 18 year olds that are just fed up with life and they've, they've had a hard shitty life, but there's positives they could take out of it. And then they could, like you said, start doing things for other people that would transform them. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is where meanings to be found too, is doing stuff for other people. That's why I have such a problem with society. Why I'm making this podcast like, there's so many people that I know that are doing sleazy, sleazy shit for money or just going into careers. They're not really about, they're not helping anyone. They're conscious of it. And it's like, I know that consciousness is plaguing you at night over that. So I don't know, just trying to get people on that are actually doing something they care about with their life. So Mm-hmm. We can try to spread that. That's also why I don't like the gay community very much because it's so instant gratification, selfish, and all about me. And I hate that. That's not where meanings to be found in life. I, I want to just touch on that real quick. Please so do. I'd say only the prominent gay people are. Okay, like yes. That. I'm I, there's about, so many closeted people and like so many okay, people that right. aren't represented. Okay, so. I, when but I yeah, say yeah, the gay yeah, community, yeah. I'm talking about like the circuit gays, the, the stereotypical gay person you see, but there's a lot of them and they're in their 30s and 40s and that's how they've always lived their life. And it's such bad role models for people that are in the closet and you're right maybe that's why they stay in the closet because there's so many they don't want to be one of those people that's not a good role model to look up to so why would you try to you know you emulate what you respect and you want to become so yeah Mm -hmm. that's all that's all i have to say about that (laughs) sorry for throwing you off (laughs) it's okay usually i throw off my speakers so (laughs) i'm not used to it all right so we took a quick break we're gonna jump into fear (laughs) i just wanted to jump right in all right fear and anxiety very correlated very similar things yes Um, could you okay can you explain the difference between fear and anxiety? Fear and anxiety. Huh. That's actually kind of hard, to be I, honest. I can do it, but I don't know if it's 100% accurate, but I want you to do it. Okay. I'll try, and then you can go. All so right. anxiety, I'd say, hmm, it's more, damn, this is actually kind of hard. <laughs> My understanding is that anxiety is your fear response going off to something that may or may not be present, and fear is being scared of something that could actually do damage to you or harm you. Gotcha. I think it's a decent definition. I think there's so much more overlap. And I think a lot of like those terms can be used interchangeably. Honestly. Yeah, and the physiological but, response is the same to both. So yeah, there is overlap. Exactly. So no, especially when you want to do something, um, you know, it's the right thing to do. But fear is holding you back. Uh-huh. There's something that's saying like, oh, I can't do this because like, I will be like exposed or it'll be so hard. And like, I'll feel like horrible inside. I just can't do this. Yeah, um, for sure. So many people live that way and think mm-hmm. about that day to day, even like small actions. Like I find myself like maybe every hour having a moment where I could do something to push past my fear and just do it, even though I know like it's going to come with like some anxiety or some mm-hmm. fear. And like, like again, this, the like other this podcast, honestly. Exactly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Literally, like every moment just in my head. Oh my God, how am I still doing this? Like, how do I know how to speak English? Like, how do I, <laughs> so much like could go wrong, but I'm just trying to push through it like every moment. And it's, it's not good to be dominated by fear or anxiety. Um, and I think anxiety, maybe what separates it is anxiety is just 
more of the irrational thinking. But people, when they think of fear, they think of something like, no, this is rational. I can't do this because there's like these good reasons not to do this. And a lot of times that's accurate and I, I will support them on that. But also a lot of times it's just maybe anxiety in disguise, like irrational anxiety. Yeah. So and, Henry Ford has a quote. It's whether you can or whether you think you can or cannot, you're right. That's well, interesting. You <laughs> I've been doing the fucking Instagram for this podcast and I have so many quotes up. So they're on my head. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. That's a good quote. That's mm-hmm. a really good quote. Yeah. A lot of how you frame it mentally is yep. what you're capable of. And then um, from a biological standpoint, since you like the rational side, um, when you put yourself into new experiences and your anxiety responses go off and you're literally forced to be in that situation where you're actually doing something, you're not just in your head about it. Um, mm-hmm. New genes turn on your body and actually open up to new possibility and transforms you biologically into what, Hell yeah. you, what you could be. That's, Hell yeah. So I'm sure you'll learn about that kind of stuff in your classes in biology and all that. Oh, yeah. That was a big part of neuroscience called mm-hmm. epigenetics. Oh, epigenetics. And, yeah. Is yep. that what that's called? I know yeah. what epigenetics are. I never made that connection. Really? Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> so I heard all this first from Jordan Peterson and I started looking into what he was talking about. It never once popped up with. So epigenetics are that. The situations you're in turn mm-hmm. on or turn off different genes. So they've exactly. been doing studies on that. You know, one of the facts that I thought was astonishing with Alzheimer's, um, they did all these like saturated fat trials with Alzheimer's. And apparently if Alzheimer's runs in your family, you can decrease the chances of you getting it by 30% if you eat this certain amount of saturated fat for your whole life and don't go above it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think that's a lot of epigenetics, honestly. Yeah. yeah. It's it's weird. It's like genes being turned on and off basically based on environmental factors and how they influence. It's nuts. You, so. We know nothing about the body. Yeah, <laughs> like, seriously. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's so cool though. I think that's such, that's such a cool field. And how do you know what health psychology is? House psychology? Health. Health psychology. Yeah, kind of. It's like the middle ground between medicine and psychology that isn't psychiatry. So it's pretty yeah. much like preventative care and how we can use epigenetics and lifestyle changes and uh, environment to pretty much do what we're saying. Turn on and turn off different genes and curve your chances of getting certain things. Exactly. And then the biological part where we can mm-hmm. actually edit genes, that's up and coming. Oh, yeah. I've seen stuff like that. They have a machine now that literally edits genes and like whatever different illnesses and stuff. I think that's so freaking cool, but I know terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, a little bit terrifying, but <laughs> it'll do more good than bad, I hope. It yeah. should, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's one more thing I wanted to say about fear. So just to encourage people who are trying to face fears or anything, it, it won't be easy to get yourself to do it, but the hardest part is the initial step for sure. It's like this big investment of mental energy you have to put in, and then from there on, it's downhill. Yeah, that's um, true. And you just have to find the mental energy to do it. Like, Do you have any advice on how to find that? Because I ask people, what, like my brother does stand-up comedy, and I'm like, what was the first time you did a show? How did you get over that mental block? Because that'll hold people back their whole life from trying something. Me? Honestly, I feel like I kind of cheated in some way. <laughs> I just felt like I have to do this. Like it, there was an opposite fear in my head saying, if you don't do this, you're going to live this life of like meaninglessness. Nope, really though. That's, I mean, sometimes you have to do tough love. And that's why I have that philosophy on patience too, where they're never going to, you have to, your will to change has to be greater than the will to stay the same. Yeah. So like when I went to Spain, that, I literally woke up at three in the morning one night and had this horrible existential frustration that I was never going to be able to do it or go live somewhere else or whatever, go learn a different language. So I literally bought a plane ticket that night with nothing else prepared. I'm like, I'm fucking doing it. Really? My hurdle was just, I was so frustrated with my life and I felt I was just angry and it came from anger with a lot of things I do were very spontaneous and I just have like fiery energy when I get to do something. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So... Yeah, honestly, in many situations, I think that's great. Of course, don't rush decision-making or anything. Or I don't know. I wouldn't recommend someone just go to Spain. But. No, it's a, it's a fine line, though, because if you don't rush, yeah. are you ever going to do it? And if it's something you want to do, mm-hmm. you know, 
like I never look back on that experience and say that was stupid for me to do that. Mm-hmm. It, it forced me. It's like the um, the necessity of a deadline, you know? Yeah. So sometimes you have to put yourself in the situation. What actually got my brother to do his first stand-up set, uh, he took a comedy class and he had no other option. At the end of the, the show, you had to do your own set. So, mm-hmm. you know, some people need that structure. So there's PSA for everyone. <laughs> That's why I don't think education is bad in the universities because some people do need the structure to get where they're going to be. I don't think it's an end-all be-all to have letters behind your name, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you need the structure, you can't do it on your own. I also going to other people helps talking to friends and stuff. Like a lot of people go skydive together or when you have the community, it's so much easier. The big reason mm-hmm. I have this podcast going is because I have a friend that does a podcast. So I've been leaning on oh. her back and forth. We've been leaning on each other um, or else I would have never gotten through that first hurdle of even finding a podcasting platform to get on. Dang. So use community, you know, use your resources, contact people. Um, it, it never hurts to contact people. So exactly. That is huge. Seriously. I mean, my conversations with my friends last couple of years have been really all the book is that my book, personal book, mm-hmm. like all the notes and passages I have written out in there are from conversations. That's also basically. how you think too, is by speaking so, and writing. Yeah. So you can't really critically think just internally. You have to go and talk to other people about it. And if you think there's something you want to try out or whatever, don't, you don't have to just go buy a plane ticket, but Mm -hmm. I talked to 30 people in my life before I bought that plane ticket and I had the social community to help me along with that decision. So it was just the final, the straw that broke the camel's back was waking up sweating in my room (laughs) that I'd grown up in. I'm like, I'm fucking leaving. (laughs) (laughs) And lo and behold, you're there for a year, year and a half. It was a year. Year. Wow. It was probably the best year of my life, but I'm trying to curb that and get rid of that thing. It it caused a lot of issues when I came back home Mm -hmm. um, because I was in the same situation I'd left in. So don't ever just leave your life or move somewhere because you think, your, your problems aren't going to exist because they do. So that's a PSA again, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, make intelligent Definitely. decisions, but you should still try things that are plaguing your consciousness to try. For sure. I think the whole thing just reminded me of another concept yeah. I want to touch on before we finish up the podcast, comparing yourself to others uh, yeah. and jealousy. Because I struggle with that a lot. Okay. So I find myself... Is this why you don't this. have social media? A little bit of why. Okay. Yeah, I forgot to talk about that. Sorry, go ahead. Um, It, it started off just because I wasn't a very social person, so I never had it in the first place. But the reason I don't take it on nowadays, well, one, I think it's a chore. Like, I, I don't like having to post things every second or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, it and, feels like a chore most days. Yeah. And I tried Snapchat for a while, but I eventually just got rid of it because I okay. don't like that. But also the comparing to others, for sure. Mm-hmm. Whenever whenever I look at LinkedIn profiles, like I have LinkedIn as the only presence I really have on the internet. Um, I'm just looking like, oh my gosh, they've accomplished so much. Like, oh, yeah. what am I? And it's just a mental way of your mind, like telling you, like, oh yeah, you're not good enough. Even though those things aren't like they're not better than you, they're just on a different path. And those things sound a lot more great than what they actually are. I'd say, and your accomplishments sound a lot less than they actually are. I'd say. Yeah, that's how we think, so, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's so hard to see past that. Like, you just have to trust, like, have faith. That's not the case. Yeah, and people, um, I agree. So people wonder why negative emotion hits so much harder. It's literally because if you take the scientific view of Darwinism, the negative emotion is what kept you alive. When things are going good, you don't have to pay attention to that. So naturally, your mind isn't going to waste energy on things that are good. You have to focus on the negative to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why negative emotion hits harder. It's more poisonous feeling. Um, yeah. So we're, we're natural to do that. In the book that I recommended earlier, Jordan Peterson, 12 Rules for Life, mm-hmm. one of its rules, I think it's rule four, don't compare yourself to others, compare yourself to who you were yesterday. Which is I all, live by that every day. You have to yeah. do that. So yeah. I went to a wedding last weekend and I'm 26 and I saw all my friends that I went to high school with and stuff I hadn't seen in a long time and they're lawyers and all this shit and they're married and I'm like, I need to listen to my own psychology advice and stop comparing myself. <laughs> this is stupid. They're on different paths. And if you think about it, 
I don't even want their lives. So why am I even, you know, you, it's like the straw man argument. You pick the best thing about their life and then you say, wow, I don't have that. When really there's a thousand things about my life I'd rather have than theirs. So exactly. if you have to ration your way out of that, then ration your way out of it. But don't become a victim of your own comparisons because that's silly. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I just wanted to throw out that I compared myself, yeah, compared myself to you so much when I was listening to these podcasts and oh, videos. God, like, jeez. Oh, my God. It I was hard to, like, get over that and, like... This person is like everything I want to be, even though it's, I don't know, not the case. Not Nothing against you or anything It's fine. Like my blushing but, went away just now. What? <laughs> no, no, no. no. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with you, but it's just like I put you at this like pedestal like, oh, yeah, I have to get there. But like, is that really my goal? Like, am I going to do the exact same thing as you or something like that? No. Or exactly. I'm and, shocked that you felt that way, to be honest. People said yeah. that they saw my videos online. I literally made them in that corner over there. And like, <laughs> they were nothing. I was just talking for 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, but thank you. But yeah, don't. It's the game we play in our minds and you psych yourself up and then you meet somebody. It's like what we do with celebrities too. And it's like, mm -hmm. and that's what the patients do with the staff. And that's why I'm so bluntly honest at the psych unit, because I don't think it's good for them to maintain that stereotype that someone's on a pedestal and they're better than them. You know, we're not supposed to tell personal stories and stuff, but I do in a respectful way. And it's good that they know that I've been through depression and not had good days and stuff. And I'm not in more, any more intelligent than they are. Exactly. Um, Thank you for pedestaling me, though. <laughs> no problem. Just wanted to point that out. It actually helps me to cope with it to get it off of my mind. Thank you. Verbalize it or whatever. So, so that's yeah. the thing, too. With with anything that's bothering you internally, one of the best ways to deal with it for coping and trauma is to write it down and talk about it. So it's literally like you're taking that mental energy out of your mind. When your mind's focusing on something, biologically, again, like energy does exist and you're spending all the energy inside your head. Get it out on paper. Write it down. Um, trauma journaling is huge. Literally write down any anything that pops up in your mind over and over again. That's a signal of trauma. So try to write it down in as much detail as you can. And you're going to feel like shit like we were talking about earlier. You're not going to feel good while you're doing it. But then you do it enough and you practice it. You get those things out of your mind. You deal with them as you're writing them down. It's forcing you to understand them. So another psychological truism is anything that hasn't been understood cannot be forgotten. And that's kind of what trauma is, is something that happened to you that was probably horrible. You know, most of the time trauma's not, trauma's not good, but mm -hmm. um, yeah. it's stuff that hasn't been understood. So like, you know, people go through whole lives as a, the child that they were when they were four years old and they got touched by their uncle. Like, you know, that's why people go to therapy, but it, you can do it by yourself again. So try to write down these memories and do it and keep writing them down until they stop bothering you. And then you're forced to understand what that meant to you. And once you understand it, it doesn't hold the same power it used to over you because you've articulated it to yourself. Exactly. I'm a huge fan of trauma journaling. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they need to do that in the psych unit and teach people those skills. I think that a lot of therapy can be, can be done and it should be done without therapist present. Um, the therapist is supposed to be just like a guide, you know, and the medication is supposed to be a guide. But if an antidepressant is going to save your life and you're not going to kill yourself because you're on it, take the antidepressant. But it's not meant to do everything and it will, it will never do everything. And uh, even after you've taken the psych meds for schizophrenia and you're not seeing things and hearing things that may or may not be there, you need to still deal with the shit that you need to deal with like everyone else. Do you want to add anything else? Hmm. This has been great. Think. This probably would be my favorite. I won't say that, but it's been, <laughs> I'll cut it out. But this is probably my favorite episode. It's been my favorite episode too, even though I've done one. But Thank yeah. you. We got political a little bit. I <laughs> loved that. The gay community <laughs> always gets brought up. Love talking about gay <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, this is so fun just because like, Again, it touches on a lot of what I'm about, my book and everything. So it is fun to find someone to talk to this stuff about. Thank you. I'm happy to see yeah. other people working in the psych unit. I don't like saying ward. It's a bad sigma. Psych ward, yeah. <laughs> psych unit that also like this kind of stuff and want to do more than just be a tech. And even if you're tech, that's not bad. But, you know, you want to eventually have the authority in the field to where you can actually make real change. So 
Thank you so exactly. much. So if people can reach you outside of here, is that possible? Can I like drop an email totally. or something in the show notes? Yeah, you can put my email in there. Thank you. I'd almost put my phone number in there, but probably not. I don't know. That's too much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I even think use my phone number. <laughs> yeah. Um, they'll be know. like, I'm trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I don't want that. I won't do that. So thank yeah. you so much for coming on. I'll drop his email in the show notes. And this has been great. Thank you, Andrew. Yep. All right. Bye. Have a good day, everyone. Alrighty. Okay. So we started talking again. So we're going to talk really quick about morality. So go ahead. Is this mic on? Testing? Okay, good. Yeah. So we were talking about morality and Andrew was saying that morality is, it's different for most people, most cultures. Subjective. Subjective. It's more subjective than objective. Is that what you would say? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to argue that it's more objective than subjective. Okay. Though not to the point of being absolute in anything. So when I take a moral case or a moral scenario, I believe that the outcome should always be goodness. And what I define as goodness is human flourishing. Which in turn I define as physical and mental health of the individual in society. But so, even that's subjective. Um, so, yes, it's subjective in the sense that some people have different moral codes. But okay. if you look across like all cultures, all peoples, like people either already have that at the core of their morality without knowing it or they gravitate towards that. Okay. Say. Yeah. So really fast. Yeah. Um, that's what Nietzsche taught. Nietzsche was so – Jordan Peterson always talks about that. And I started reading Dostoevsky for this reason. So – Nietzsche believed that you would become the perfect person if you could define your own moral code. Oh, interesting. It's called the Uberman or the Ubermensch, however you say it. So you define your own moral code and then you live by it. And that's what the Uberman was. That's the perfectly developed human being. But um, Jordan Peterson pointed out that you can't develop your own moral code. So I'm reading Dostoevsky right now, Crime and Punishment. And the whole book is about someone who thinks he can develop his own moral code and he murders somebody and he thinks she was going to get die anyways, and it's my own right to kill her if I want to. It's my own code that what I say is right and wrong. And after that, he's plagued by his consciousness that he actually can't define his own moral code. And there's something inside him that tells him what is right and what is wrong. So is that kind of what you're saying with objectivity? Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. I, again, objectivity is not like, okay, these are the moral rules you must live by, and they're unchanging. Like, they don't change. Okay, that's how just I like, it. Yeah. So, no. So, I call it. I mean, maybe this sounds arrogant. It's just because I'm writing a book called Increasing Complexity, but I call it complex morality. And it's kind of a variation of utilitarianism, but I'd say it takes into account much more complexity, for lack of a better word. So I break each moral uh, case down just by like the individual case and the acts that are involved. So like if you're saying, if you're trying to determine whether a certain action is moral or not, you take the case, the individual case, you look at all the factors and you ask, does this promote some kind of flourishing health or for the individual. Or the You're community. looking for a morality so, equation? What? Are you looking for a morality equation? I guess that's one way to put it. Okay. But yeah. So like, yeah, I do it case by case though. So any act in of itself doesn't have, like it's not either moral or immoral without like the surrounding factors in okay. the case. Like you can't just like murder. I mean, murder by definition is wrongful killing. So if you're going to say it's wrong, then it's always wrong. But if you just go by killing, there's instances where killing would be the moral thing to do, in my opinion, based on the factors of the case. But it's your opinion. Um, yeah, based on the belief that it promotes human flourishing in that case. Okay. It's rare, okay, but so I think that's... Let me throw you a case and see what you think. So yeah. let's say you take a criminally insane person who doesn't really mean to do harm to people, but he's or she has done harm because they get into psychotic episodes and they're not going to take their meds and they've killed five people in these episodes and it's going to keep happening and psychiatrists can't find out what's going on. So you have the option to kill them you know, in a humane way, as humane as possible, or you let them go out and chances are 90% they're going to murder somebody else. So where does it... You're saying you have no means to contain them? <sighs> Let's say we don't in this case. Okay. 
So this is actually something the Catholic Church taught. They said death penalty is moral if you have no means to contain the person from society. And I actually agree with that, being raised as a Catholic myself, even though I don't agree with all official Catholic teachings. Okay. That's one of them I do. And I think that would best promote human flourishing in that scenario. Okay, so, so you're taking, I don't even know, like moral... That's only if you don't have the means to contain them, which in modern society I think we do. But even like, like, even like containment, it could be immoral on a certain aspect. Like I think it's immoral that we are locking psych patients in the unit without their consent. Even yeah, to a degree think, I agree. And then who decides if it's for the greater good that they're in there? Mm-hmm. It's like, or so when you break down morality into more of an objective standpoint, I think you get kind of like Orwellian in your thinking and then who's making... You know, humans are always going to be making the decision on what's moral and what's not. Mm-hmm. And a hierarchy is going to form and not every single person in the world is going to decide on if something is moral or not. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's like a fine line between utilitarian and um, totalitarian. What's totalitarian again? It's like the, the, the state owns everything and they make the yeah. decisions. They know best. Big brother kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's possible to get to like a more ideal moral state without going that far. Have you read into communist Russia at all or any communism? Uh, a little bit. I'm okay. Reading a book on Marxism. It's called American Marxism, actually. My grandfather wanted me to read it. Cool. Who, what's it about? Uh, about the modern movements nowadays. Oh, like, po- postmodernism is the big one. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. So a lot about like just the modern politics and how like it could be Marxist in some way or like, okay. postmodern. I, I haven't heard of that. But that, like, yeah. I mean, it's just a fine line. I get where you're going with it, but communism was supposed to be the end all be all you know the state or the moral board gives out all the resources right and that's how it's supposed to be but we're all humans and there's evil in the world so that's not how it ended up and mm-hmm. it could never work that way so i guess i i'm not totally disagreeing with you because i understand your logic but i don't think it would work what wouldn't re- work um, just having a moral code applied to everyone yeah i don't think you could ever have a moral code that wouldn't be subjective Interesting. Well, what about modern moral codes like American society and everything? Like, yeah, well, there's immoral things we do all the time, like the psych ward. And then if we we're going to go to like Middle East cultures, like we were talking about earlier, with they're totally okay with having sex with what we would consider a child. And that's not moral here, but there it's totally moral. So there's definitely subjectivity to it. So I'm going to make the argument that our culture is a lot better. And I'll go. Okay. So <laughs> number one. Argument. That's a big argument. Number one. You don't want to be offensive, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I guess not. I no, mean, I'm there's. Kidding. Elements of every culture that are better than elements of other culture, in my belief. Okay, but overall, I think Western society has it best. And I think, one, you can just tell because societies tend to gravitate towards that over time. Like, I mean, Europe, U.S., now like Latin America is becoming more westernized. Countries over time just have a need for more equality, more fairness, like a care for the poor, bringing people out of poverty yeah, and no. just like general flourishing and just in total. And I think like the life expectancy goes up and people realize that technological advancements people are more able to be cured from diseases live happier lives i mean mental health for instance like geez we're just beginning to scrape that field but like in arabic countries like middle eastern countries that's like people just start quiet about they don't even want to talk about it so i think we're a lot more advanced in terms of human flourishing in western society and again since that's what i base my moral code and i'm going to say we have a better moral code but it's subjective then um i mean it's subjective in the sense that like there's no again it's most people would agree, I'd say. Most like people here that would agree. Human flourishing. Yeah. But I think over time, most people would gravitate towards that. I mean, like, and they have. But yeah. that's even if you just take that on a physical plane, not morality, they're gravitating to us because we have figured out. I mean, look at the standard of living in America compared to anywhere else. We have always been the ones leading technology and stuff. So that's just, that's why in our democratic system is really the best it's ever existed as far as politics go. And mm-hmm. I, I just think that isn't, I don't know. I, I think it's so subjective to say moral, morally that we're superior just because there's more people. I don't know. 
Well, it depends on what you define morality as. I choose to define it as what promotes human flourishing, and I think we do a better job than Middle Eastern countries, so I'd say we have better morality. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of shit in Middle Eastern culture I don't agree with. Like, if mm-hmm. you look at what happened with, is it Kabul? Is that how you say that? I think, yeah. You're with, literally, people would rather jump on an airplane that's moving in midair than go and have to face the Taliban. There's obviously horrible atrocities that are going on there, mm-hmm. and I don't agree with their moral code on their policies. I, I don't know if... If Muslim religion actually says in the book that you have to dispose of anyone who doesn't believe in those beliefs, I've never read, read the Quran, but if that's actually what they believe and that's a, you know, a moral code of theirs, then I don't agree with that either. So there's things I don't agree with their moral code, but I, you're just defining, are you defining Dar- Darwinism pretty much it, only in terms of morality? What do you mean? Like survival of the fittest, yeah. natural selection? Not really. I don't, well, I, I guess like the moral... If you just think of the moral belief system, uh-huh. I would say, yeah, survival of the fittest. Like it has played out over time. Not to say that like we could all of a sudden just all be wiped out or all of a mm-hmm. sudden we could take a downturn. But I do think that better moral systems have been persistent. Yeah. Over time, like the better moral systems are the ones that are selected for. And like America, Western society, I think is evidence of that over time. So what case are you arguing in your book then? That they should adopt the whole world should adopt the more westernized moral yeah, system? Yeah, to a degree. Okay. Yep. So you were going mm-hmm. back to with the individual, you have three different classes of morality, right? Uh, three different classes. In you said the individual. Oh, individual community. And I guess there's like, there's levels in between that, like family okay. groups, friendships, like that kind of stuff. But yeah, like I think a lot of moral systems don't take into account either the individual or the community. Like they're too focused on one or the other, but like a focus on both. Cause the individual is the building block of society. Uh, if you focus on both the flourishing of the individual and the community, um, I think that's where you produce the best results. I agree. I so that, dualism in anywhere. So like no, no one side is right. The rational brain that you have is not better than someone else's creative brain. The Democrats aren't better than the Republicans, vice versa. Um, mm. Masculine and feminine energy. Like that's, you always want to find. So that's technically with Jesus Christ, he was the perfect human being because he walked the line of order and chaos. So mm. like he was the perfectly balanced human being. That's what made him perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, he had both the good and the bad, the masculine and the feminine, the social and the individual aspects of his life all figured out. So yeah, that's why he's an that's archetype. So I'm still confused about your moral code. So like, what is, <laughs> what, what is the case you're making then? Like, how do we adopt a moral code or? Gotcha. Well, I think people need to become more morally conscious. I don't think people think about that a lot. I, which so was, I don't know. I don't know either, but I was talking, I think we are more than ever. More morally conscious than ever? Yeah. I, was, I, my, I agree. I agree. Yeah. My, my mom went to law school on the episode I did the other day, me and uh, whoever I was on with were talking about something moral. And she's like, I don't remember ever thinking about that when I was your age. And when she was my age, she was in her last year of a doctorate in law. So I'm like, how do you go into law without thinking about the morality of everything you're doing in law? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> really? Or, or medicine or any field. Like, how do you not? Doesn't that plague you every day? And I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I think we're getting there. Yeah, um, I agree. I still think there's a huge barrier to be passed, though, because morality more than other belief systems. Like if someone challenges your belief on math or something like that or science or maybe not science, <laughs> but something more objective, quote unquote, uh-huh. um, you'll be more likely to say like, oh, yeah, I see where I went wrong. I'll try to improve it. But if someone challenges your moral beliefs, on the other hand, you're a lot more likely to just like, no, this is correct. Like, I know it like you much more attached to your moral beliefs because they're more at the core of who you are. I mean, as far mm-hmm. as like the, the court systems go, I think we have a very good moral grounding uh we have juries go on and decide collectively but mm-hmm. i mean that's all you can do and it's case by case for every situation and we're never going to make the right choice versus to make the popular one exactly um but i think a lot of things that plague the law system nowadays and the point i was just making uh, this divide between 
ideological beliefs or moral beliefs of one person and I, those beliefs of the other person. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, even in the Supreme Court, getting all these five, four readings, like there's morality is a huge influence on the person thinks. And like, honestly, and this is a term that I didn't touch on, but also my book, they'll fabricate logic or like try to structure the arguments of the law to like fit what they want, basically, or like the ruling they want to make. Basically. Yeah, well, that's confirmation bias. Yeah, and confirmation bias, I guess is another way to put it. Yeah. I like just calling it fabricated logic sounds fancy. No, that's good. But yeah, so I think we need to get beyond this divide. And I think the best way I can think of getting beyond this divide is, well, having more intellectual humility. Um, I realizing, agree. Yeah, like, I mean, your beliefs aren't as strong or as good as you think they are, and other people's beliefs are better than you're giving them credit for. Yeah, literally. If you have a belief that's strong and you're good, die hard on it, go and make the opposite claim and then try to build up that claim as much as you can. And if you can't find any holes in your own logic, then I guess you can hold on to your belief. But it's like you said, you're writing your book. How many times have you changed things in it? <laughs> Tons. Yeah. Even I started writing a book six months ago. I'm like, oh my God, even psych stuff that I thought I knew is a fact, you know? Yeah. So exactly. Know. morality is always going to be changing. And it's always going to be case by case. And that's why we have such whole careers devoted to judges trying to figure out what the right choice is and why you go to school mm-hmm. for so long and why we have politics. Exactly. Like, what do you think about abortion? Um, so that's a complex case, case by case, obviously. But I not think, objective? Um, well, no, I think, okay, so I think in every <laughs> any given case, if you take all the factors of a case, there's an objective answer. Like, what promotes human flourishing the most? That's the best, more like, that's the most moral thing. I mean, I get it, case. but even then, like, you can't predict the future, so you don't always know what's going to predict human. Oh yeah, well sure, but you can become better as time goes along. I yeah, mean, but you can our knowledge, become, technology. But you can increased. never become near objective. Yeah, I mean, you'll never be perfect in what you the decision you make, but like certainly, and actually, this is a good argument for objectivity. Like certain things are obviously better than others. Like killing, murder is a bad thing, and like there's many mm-hmm. actions that are better than that, and that's just like objective. So if you follow that thought pattern, you'll find that a lot but of things are even that isn't objective though, because like we said earlier, if the Quran actually says that you should get rid of people that don't believe in Muslim beliefs, then technically your moral code says that murder is okay. And that actually is happening in countries all around us. So Mm -hmm. but what do you mean by objective versus subjective then? I I mean, I think we're like playing around with definitions. I think we are. Okay. But I think that's what you're, you're claiming in your book. So I want to make sure I have it right. So subjective just means that it's opinion based. It's, It's your own perspective gets in the way of objective scientific truth, like math. Mm hmm. So with morality, we're always going to get in the way, you know, every single thing, anything. And the first thing you learn about psychology is that every single thing that happens to you affects you, mm-hmm. regardless of how much you're explicitly aware of it. Your unconscious guides your entire life. That's a truism of psychology and self-awareness. You're, you're never self-aware to the point of you're an objectively alive thing on this planet. There's always something affecting your decisions. Exactly. Your own perspective. So that's what I mean by objective. Okay. Gotcha. So I guess the only way I'm going to justify this is I'm going to say that I want to define morality as what promotes human flourishing. And I feel like a lot of people would agree with that. That's fine. I can take that. Yeah. But I wouldn't say objective or subjective because then it throws off the logic of your, I think of the argument a little bit, but I could be wrong. I'm not trying to put you in a corner or anything, but I'm trying to ration out your your argument and Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to weak man you on it. (laughs) No, no. I'm actually thinking about it. I have to think about it more too because I can't believe I'm thought of this after like three years of writing this book. It's hard when you're making moral claims. Like Nietzsche is one of the best philosophers ever existed. And Jordan Peterson comes along and I quote him a lot because I do a lot of reading from him and he has a lot of good points, but he's disproving logically some of the things that Nietzsche thought were certain and that millions of people thought were certain. So Mm -hmm. it's just hard to have an objective viewpoint on anything. That's why psychology is such a freaking young messed up field. Yeah. And why, you know, lobotomies are okay if you sign consent and (laughs) electric shock therapy actually does work for some people, but to mm-hmm. other people, it's completely barbaric, you know, exactly. And abortion and gay rights. And if, whether we say 
queer or faggot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like yeah. I had a whole episode about that. Whether faggot or queer was more offensive to say, or I don't know. Like it's, mm, queer's not offensive. I think queer's offensive. Really? <laughs> Only because it's my ear weird. If someone called me <laughs> queer over faggot, I'd be way more offended. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Damn. Okay. <laughs> I know. Queer just sounds. I don't know why. It's like it sounds like nineteen. 19- 10 hey he's queer (laughs) oh my god (laughs) that's interesting but yeah i guess i'd never thought about that way in fact i use that word in my campaign so queer like all the time no but it's in so it's lgbtq i don't actually get offended by it but i think if i had to pair faggot or queer next to each other i'd be more offended if somebody called me a a queer than a faggot really one wouldn't offend me but you queer yeah Yeah. queer i don't know (laughs) it's because you can say that one on the side of your mouth (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) interesting interesting (laughs) What was the initial topic, though, like the question? Because, I, again, I'd lose train of thought. So I easily. think we both lost train of thought. <laughs> I think we started talking about morality out of nowhere. Yeah. And it was, yeah, the objective versus subjective. But, yeah, I, I guess I agree with you. Like, we have to define objective subjective first before we start making claims. Or just sure. take that all the way out of the equation and just say morality is based on what promotes human growth. Human growth? Human flourishing? Flourishing. What's the yeah. difference? Same thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what I would do. Yeah. But don't exactly. listen to me. Don't put me on a pedestal. <laughs> no, I like that because it justifies what I already believe. So yeah, right. Everyone loves what the things that justify what they believe mm-hmm. already. So. Confirmation bias. This whole podcast yep. is just my big confirmation bias. My ego is huge. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Same here. All right. So I hope you guys enjoyed that little bonus about morality. Um, It was super enjoyable to me to talk about that with Don. Um, I just want to take this last few seconds here to thank everyone so much for listening to the Drift Proof Podcast. If you guys could go to my Instagram and like it or comment or share or follow me, it is at Drift Proof Podcast on Instagram. That means a lot to me. Right now I have almost as many posts as followers. Thank you so much again for listening. And I will see you guys again on Monday with episode 10.